Oftentimes, the boys and men who are farthest from that ideal, the marginalized groups, the groups that perceive themselves to be less masculine based on sort of hegemonic masculinity, those are the males that are actually most impacted. It's generally not the males who are aligning with the sort of masculine and muscular ideal. It's the males who aren't, right? It's the maybe the males who are in larger bodies or maybe more emotional than other males. Generally, those males are actually having a lot more distress as it relates to their body or just how they present and engage in the world. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, anti-fat bias, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul-Smith. I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter, and I'm the author of Fat Talk. Today, I am chatting with Kyle Ganson, PhD. Kyle is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wattash Faculty of Social Work. His research focuses on eating disorders, muscle dysmorphia, and muscle-building behaviors among adolescents and young adults, particularly boys and young men. Kyle also has over eight years of direct clinical social work practice experience, and he teaches clinical social work courses to MSW students. So today we are talking about eating disorders and disordered behaviors with food and exercise among boys. And I know this is an episode a lot of you have been asking for. We don't talk enough about boys and how they struggle with all of these issues. Kyle's research has been really instrumental in building my own knowledge around this issue. He was a major contributor to Chapter 9 of Fat Talk. And I think what he is uncovering about how boys engage in exercise in particular and in other disordered behaviors is so important and is hopefully really going to change the landscape of our understanding of how eating disorders play out for boys. So this is a good one. If you have a boy, if you were a boy, if you know a boy, Also, parents of girls, I think there's a lot of useful stuff in here for us as well. I do want to give a content warning. We do talk about specific disordered eating behaviors and eating disorder symptoms. If any of that is going to be tricky for you, feel free to skip. But otherwise, here's Kyle. And first, a quick break. If you like the conversations we have here and want to support the show, I'd love for you to do one or all of the following things. First, make sure to subscribe or follow the show in your podcast player. This way, you will never miss an episode. Second, rate or review the podcast to help other folks find it. Just scroll down in Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen, tap the stars, and leave us a little note. We like five stars, please, and lots of butter. Third, subscribe to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's free and gets you every podcast transcript, plus all of my essays and reported features, right in your inbox. If you want even more, become a paid subscriber for just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get lots of bonus content, you keep this an ad and sponsor-free space, and you enable us to compensate podcast guests for their time and labor, which is key to centering marginalized voices in this space. You can join the list for free or check out the paid options by clicking the link in your episode description or head to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. Whatever you do, thanks for listening and supporting anti-diet, body liberation journalism. It really stems from just this experience of being in clinical spaces with uh, women with eating disorders and really just wondering, like, where are all the guys? Like, what's going on here? This is not really, like what I hear from when I talk to other males about their body or how they feel about themselves or their eating practices. So it didn't really align with what I was hearing in my friend groups or just people I would speak to. So that kind of led me towards the path of like researching eating disorders among the male population. So we met when I interviewed you for chapter nine of Fat Talk about your research on dads and their role in eating disorder treatment. 
And I have to say, that chapter really did require me to put aside a lot of my own biases and preconceived notions and realize, yeah, I had been assuming that eating disorders was a exclusively female or gender nonconforming experience, which is incorrect, very incorrect. <laughs> so yes. let's talk about that a little bit, though. Why do you think we are so quick to assume that these are issues that men and boys just don't struggle with? Yeah, it's such a great question. And you're certainly not alone with that sort of preconceived notions of how we think about eating disorders. So I think if people who are listening also have that thought or are surprised by that, I think that's totally okay and totally normal. I think there's a couple of different factors here. One of them is certainly just media and how we've described people with eating disorders in popular culture has often been mostly women, mostly affluent females, white females as experiencing eating disorders, young females, adolescents, young adults. So that's number one. And secondly, I think another piece of it is just research and clinical spaces, which obviously does, you know, sort of reflect a bit of the culture, but also reflects what we see in the culture. So even like diagnostic criteria for anorexia up until very recently, in one of the newer iterations of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, actually included amenorrhea, which is loss of periods, uh, mm. in order to be diagnosed with anorexia. So a yeah, male, that's a problem. Uh, yeah, prior to 2013, actually could not be diagnosed with anorexia because they technically don't lose their period. So that's just like a huge piece of the puzzle that we often overlook and don't think about. So males are just less likely to complain about their body, talk about their body, you know, support around body image and food just because the spaces that we treat people are not so much focused on the male experience. And again, that's changed a bit more recently, but it's still a hard process to get males in the door. And then I think lastly is just like socialization processes. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it kind of goes back to the culture, of course, too. But, you know, females are often more socialized and to talk about feelings and food and body, whereas males, and I think I'm speaking a bit more on the like sort of sex male-female here, but I guess we mm-hmm. could talk about gender as being a lot more diverse than that. But, yeah. you know, and males are a lot more focused on like the performance of their bodies. When you watch a sporting event, like you always see statistics about males' bodies, like how big they are, how strong they are, how fast they can run, whereas females are much more criticized based on their physical appearance as far as aesthetic purposes. Mm. So I think that kind of differentiation also sort of allows males to fall into this different bucket where they may not be perceived as having a problem because, oh, that male is just exercising to become faster in their sport or stronger in their sport or be able to sort of lift this amount of weight or, you know, have the six-pack abs, right? And I think that's a little bit different than the female experience. It feels like a really important reframe. So you're saying women and girls are subjected to these aesthetic standards about bodies. Men have maybe less of the aesthetic and more of the output, the what can your body do, what can you lift, all of that. Mm -hmm. But that is allowing us to ignore that can also be a driver of disorders. Totally. Absolutely. I think that's a big part of it. And and not to say that males don't experience aesthetic pressures. I think we've probably seen more of that recently, especially since like the advent of social media and things of that nature. And and obviously males have been sort of sexualized in popular culture as Mm -hmm. well, of course. But I do think that generally it's a lot more based on how their bodies can perform that does drive some of the behaviors that they engage in, like excessive exercising or like use of performance enhancers, which again, obviously has an aesthetic approach to it. Like there's aesthetic purposes and aesthetic repercussions, let's say. But there's also a lot of just driving for sort of performative aspects of their body. Right. And I'm just thinking how often we normalize men's relationship with exercise because we're like, 
oh, they just really care about their running time. Mm -hmm. And so that allows us to ignore the fact that there might be something disordered about caring that much Mm -hmm. about your running time or your triathlon performance or whatever it is. It's, you know, we'll be like, oh, but it's not about body image. So Mm -hmm. it's not the same thing. And same thing with like eating behaviors. Like I think we often overlook like binge eating among males. I feel like I've heard this a lot in my prior clinical practice or even just like in like social and family relationship conversations like, oh, he can sit down and eat a whole pint of ice cream and it's no big deal. Like, and that actually might be a binging behavior for that Mm -hmm. young male. But because we sort of socialize it as like, he's a male, he's got fast metabolism because he's growing, he's a teenager, you know what I mean? Like, it sort of becomes very okay for that behavior to happen and we just overlook it. Whereas, I I mean, again, not to generalize, but if a female was doing the same behavior, there would probably be a lot more emotion attached to that. That would be perceived as problematic, right? Like, you can't do that, right? You can't eat that much. That's not okay, right? I'm using quotation marks here. It's not what I actually believe, but (laughs) but that would be framed in a very different way. And I think that, again, opens doors for males to just, like, engage in behaviors without much support. And it does lead to this idea of males just like not even knowing they have a problem. Like they might engage in that behavior every night or a couple of times a week. And like in some of the qualitative interviews that we've seen, like they don't even know they have a problem. They're like, I just Mm. thought this is what I did. And like, that's a huge problem. No one's ever investigating what's the underlying stuff. Like what's the restriction that led to eating the pint of ice cream? You know, no one's peeling back those layers for them in the same way. So your research has looked at some of the behaviors that boys tend to engage in. And so many of these things are just like the vernacular of modern diet culture, concepts like cheat meals, bulking and cutting, intermittent fasting. So what have you learned about how boys engage in this stuff? And I guess I'm also curious how we start to differentiate between what's the culture and what's the disorder when maybe it's a little bit all one and the same. I mean, the last part of that question is like the never-ending kind of conundrum of what we're trying to figure out, I think. These behaviors that I've focused on have been like very common in the popular sort of culture for a while now, like cheat meals, bulking and cutting, intermittent fasting. For those of listeners who don't know, I'll explain kind of each of those as I go through them. So cheat meals are essentially a deviation from sort of a typical dietary practice, generally more, I would say more restrictive in some senses, where you might not allow yourself to eat like an entire pizza in one sitting or, you know, two or three Big Macs or something in one sitting. And that is kind of what the cheat meal is. It allows yourself a single meal where you can sort of cheat away from your restrictive diet. Now, in the muscle building community, cheat meals have actually become a catalyst for like muscular growth and sort of caloric overconsumption, again, to sort of boost one's ability to build muscle. And I think that even goes up to like, you know, popular culture figures like The Rock has often posted on Instagram, like his cheat meals, like what he eats. Mm -hmm. And social media has obviously been a huge driver of cheat meals. So you can you know, search hashtag cheat meals and see people's images of what they're eating. But guys, don't um, do it. It's not worth it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah don't but do yes, it. um, it's all over TikTok. But it's spare all yourself. over there. It's all over there. So we actually asked people like their engagement, what did they do? How much did they eat? Things of that nature. Oh, wow. And what we found was actually 60% of males, boys and young men, ages 16 to 30, said they engaged in at least one cheat meal in the past year. And it was pretty high across the sample. So we had, it was 54% or so for girls and young women and about 50% for transgender and gender expansive people. So it's pretty common for most people to engage in at least one cheat meal. 
And generally the foods that people are engaging in were like sweet foods, calorically dense foods. And we found that the people who engaged in cheat meals were much more likely to experience eating disorder attitude and behaviors, in particular binge eating. And so you can likely imagine that experience of a cheat meal is a binge eating episode where they might feel a loss of control. They might experience sort of guilt as a sort of consequence of engaging in the behavior. And then, of course, there's like oftentimes compensatory behaviors attached to that as well. Right. So participants also reported engaging in like other compensatory behaviors like purging. So it's definitely wrapped up in that experience of eating disorder pathology. It's so interesting because the concept of the cheat meal or the rhetoric around it is very much like you're giving yourself permission Mm -hmm. to enjoy these foods that you have restricted the rest of the week. And now you get to have them with no consequences. And it just goes to show how much the bias is all baked in. Like you can't actually escape the consequences because if you weren't restricting the whole week beforehand, you wouldn't need the cheat meal, right? Mm -hmm. Like you wouldn't need to frame it as this day of sin or whatever. And it sort of goes into a lot of things you've written about and talked about, which is like, just allowing yourself to eat the foods that you want to right. eat then therefore alleviates you from this idea of like having to engage in a quote-unquote cheat meal in order to eat the pizza or something like that. Allow yourself to eat the food that you want to eat, right? Right. <laughs> and hopefully right. avoid some of these problems that might be associated with it. Yeah, so let's talk about bulking and cutting. I feel like those are terms I hear and barely know what they are. Bulking and cutting is also very common in the sort of muscle building community. Generally, it's, again, a similar sort of dietary practice where you oscillate between a bulking phase, which is generally a period of time where you consume more calories than you need. And it's coupled with like muscle building exercise. So generally, people are weight training in this time. And the point of it is to bulk up, right, to increase your muscle mass. And then that sort of switches to what would be called a cutting phase, which is basically just the opposite. So it's a caloric Mm -hmm. restriction. And that then allows you to, quote unquote, reduce the body fat you might have gained during the bulking phase without losing too much of the muscle mass that you've gained. It just sounds like so much to keep track of and manipulate and to constantly be objectifying your body in that way to think about. I mean, I just, I'm just feeling sad for people. It does include like a lot of obsessiveness around food and only allowing yourself to eat at particular places, you know, kind of interfering with social activities, things of that nature. So yeah, yeah, there's lots of problems attached to it for sure. We found that 50% of the boys and young men had reported engaging in at least one bulk and cut cycle. So that included both a period of bulking and a period of cutting in the past 12 months. So again, like a pretty high percentage of them are Mm -hmm. manipulating their body in some capacity through this sort of bulking and cutting phases. And again, not surprisingly, we looked at different sort of associated factors with the bulking and cutting and not surprisingly, eating disorder, psychopathology, attitudes, behaviors was associated with it. Let's quickly talk about muscle dysmorphia because that might be a newer term for my audience. Can you define that and talk specifically about how it shows up for boys? Yeah. So muscle dysmorphia has previously been known as reverse anorexia, which might be the most easy way to just kind of understand it, even though it's maybe not like the best characterization. Mm. But generally, it's the pathological pursuit of muscularity. And the reverse anorexia part comes in is because people with anorexia usually see themselves as larger than they actually are. Whereas with muscle dysmorphia, people actually see themselves as smaller than they actually are. So someone Mm. with muscle dysmorphia is actually usually quite large, quite strong, quite lean, quite cut, but they see themselves as being too small. Interesting. It's actually a specifier of body dysmorphic disorder. So it's not really an eating disorder per se, though it has a lot of eating disorder qualities to it. Of course, the body image component and a lot of dietary practices and sort of 
pathological behaviors aimed at sort of increasing, you know, musculature and, and strength. And what do we understand about treatment for it? That's a great question. You know, there is just a very, very, very small amount of literature on clinical samples of muscle dysmorphia. It's actually a huge problem in the research community and the clinical community that we just don't actually know what the best way to treat people with muscle dysmorphia is because we just don't have a lot of clinical data on them. Most of the studies on muscle dysmorphia are are mostly like gym goers or bodybuilders. Again, not surprisingly, those are people who be at most risk for muscle dysmorphia. Mm-hmm. The study that I did, we did look at muscle dysmorphia. It's one of the first real studies, too, to also look at an epidemiology sample, like a community sample of young people and how does muscle dysmorphia kind of present among that group. Again, not clinical muscle dysmorphia, but like symptomology of muscle dysmorphia. Mm-hmm which would be like that drive for muscularity, appearance intolerance as it relates to one's muscles, and then also like functional impairment. So how does their behaviors, their body image, and in relation to their muscle building, interfere with their ability to like go to work and socialize and things of that nature. So even our data, it's actually still lacking because it doesn't really get at what actually works as far as treating this population. And I'm sure, too, there's probably some comorbidities with anorexia or with other eating disorders, right? And so yeah. you're trying to suss out what you're treating. And, and in some ways, all these different labels can be problematic right. in the pursuit of actually helping yep. people and seeing them for where they are, right? Right. And I think you can imagine like males, again, just aren't socialized to talk about their bodies, to seek mental health treatment, period. And then think about a male in a bodybuilding gym who's like, totally ripped and like people are coming up to him and being like hey man what's your secret you're doing all the right things like maybe they're competing in bodybuilding and they're winning or having that feedback loop that just keeps telling them they're doing the right thing it was going to be very hard to convince that person to go to treatment to like get help for it right we love to reinforce people's eating disorders um, yeah, exactly. that seems yeah. universal across gender is <laughs> something yes. we do it just shows yes. up different different flavors exactly but that does make it so difficult and i'm sure too there's ways in which it feels safer to exist in the world in that body this starts to tie into mm-hmm. issues of privilege access all of that probably comes into play as well I think masculinity is hugely intertwined with muscularity. And so you can imagine that a male who wants to portray a certain level of masculinity and certain level of strength, a sort of dominance over other males, over females, would likely want to strive for that sort of bigger, stronger body. Mm -hmm. And there has been some research that's shown that people with muscle dysmorphia or even symptoms of muscle dysmorphia have had experiences of violence, victimization themselves or Mm -hmm. childhood adverse experiences. So lots of like sort of trauma can be wrapped up in that. Right. Not to mention like polysubstance use and suicidality and all that kind of stuff. So there's, it's definitely clinically a really complex issue that has multiple layers to it. And I didn't include this on the original list of questions, but I'm realizing I should have. When we're talking about men here, is your research looking mostly at straight men, at a mix of straight and gay? And by, you know, how does that all come into play as well? The study that I have led, which is called the Canadian Study of Adolescent Health Behaviors, it's about 2,700 young people across all 13 provinces and territories in Canada. It's also very demographically diverse. So we actually have a lot of like marginalized, like racialized participants. There's a large sample in the study of sexual and gender minorities. We look at transgender and gender expansive people, as well as gay, lesbian, queer, questioning other young people as well. So generally when I'm speaking about like boys and men, I'm speaking about like cisgender boys and men. 
when I'm talking about girls and women, I'm generally speaking about cisgender girls and women, referencing transgender or gender expansive people. It includes like the people who kind of identify as, you know, not cisgender in some capacity. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it definitely includes a large sample of sexual minority young people as well. And do we see eating disorders among gay and queer boys and men playing out differently than straight boys and men? Yeah, certainly, you know, males who maybe want to be more attractive towards other males are certainly trying to achieve a body that's going to do that. And similarly for males who are, you know, attracted to females and want females to be attracted to them, right, they're going to engage in certain behaviors. And same thing with the trans group as well, whereas generally, you know, people are going to engage in the behaviors where they want to actually kind of align their body to be, right? So for example, a trans male might engage in a lot more bodybuilding and muscle building activities, where a trans female might engage in more thinness-oriented behaviors in order to potentially suppress sex characteristics, things of that nature, Mm -hmm. um, and also just to achieve like that more thin ideal, which is more common among the female population. And then too, of course, there's the question of like, well, if someone is trying to feel safe in their body, then we need gender-affirming care for that person. Totally. We don't want the disordered behaviors, of course, but it's understandable to be trying to transition your body into the body that feels right for you. It's multi-layered, right? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And that's sort of where the policy pieces and healthcare systems become really important, right? Is that Mm -hmm. people are engaging in eating disorder behaviors for a reason. They're not just doing it for fun. Right. You know, they're they're engaging in it probably. Yeah. (laughs) You know, they're engaging in it for maybe like, mental health reasons, of course, like as they've experienced, especially for those marginalized groups, as they've experienced, you know, minority stressors and discrimination, marginalization, you know, all that kind of stuff. They're actually trying to manipulate their body in a way to make it feel and align more with the gender they feel they are. Mm -hmm. And if we can actually provide appropriate, probably evidence-based treatments in the healthcare system, that would probably do a lot of good. I had Jessica Wilson on the podcast a few weeks ago. She's a Black dietitian and um, Mm. body liberation activist and has a book about Black women's relationships with eating disorders. And she really challenges the idea that we even would label the behaviors as a disorder when someone is just trying Mm. to find safety in a marginalized body. And I think about that all the time now. Yeah. If we think about like all disorders, they're all like some ways around about coping a lot of times Mm -hmm. or about emotion regulation, about trauma. If people don't have the resources to deal with their trauma or deal with their emotions for various reasons, it could be internal resources, external resources, or just the social community they live in, mm-hmm. they're going to find ways to survive, right? It's about survival in some ways. And when we make it all about body image, we really ignore all of those other factors that are at play. Absolutely. And it feels like in yeah. the conversation around men and boys, we're really just mm-hmm. starting to scratch the surface on all of those factors as well. People are multidimensional, right? And so there are gay men, there are straight men, there are black men, there are white men. Like, you know, it's like all these different intersections and identities, right? We often talk about these things in generalizations when in reality, there's lots of sort of layers and sort of teasing out some details that we really actually sometimes can't even get at with data because it's Mm -hmm. so granular and unique among certain populations. Oftentimes, the boys and men who are farthest from that ideal, the marginalized groups, the groups that perceive themselves to be less masculine based on sort of hegemonic masculinity, those are the males that are actually most impacted. It's generally not the males who are aligning with the sort of masculine and muscular ideal. It's the males who aren't, right? It's the maybe the males who are in larger bodies or maybe more emotional than other males. Generally, those males are actually having a lot more distress as it relates to their body or just how they present and engage in the world. 
Yeah, that feels really important to name. So now, of course, I'm thinking about all the parents listening who are thinking about their sons and are freaking out, understandably. (laughs) What should parents be looking for? How do you recommend parents start to engage with their sons on this topic? Something that I recommend this for parents and just all people, like it's just this idea of respectful curiosity. It can be really quick to judge behaviors. It can be very quick to jump to conclusions about what certain behaviors mean or don't mean. And so I think it's this idea of respectful curiosity. It's about asking questions. It's about being present, especially when we talk about boys and young men. They're not really going to sit down across the table from you and like tell that you how they feel about their body. Mm-hmm. Like, that's probably the last thing they're going to do. I would say most right. of them probably aren't going to do that, right? But what they might do is they might talk to you as you're sort of engaging in the activity with them or showing some curiosity curiosity about what they're doing. And so, yeah, I often say, like, join them, like, join them in the process as much as you can. Like, maybe Mm -hmm. that means going to the gym with them. Again, if that's something you you want to do or feel inclined to do, you can do that. But, you know, noticing, like, oh, I'm seeing that you're using this, like, whey protein supplement. Like, where'd you learn about that? Tell me about it. I, I didn't know that was, like, a thing. It's not about accusing. It's not about, like, don't do that. It's just about, like, hey, where did you learn about that? What does it do for you? How does it make you feel after you work out? Who told you about it? Where do you buy Mm -hmm. it, right? Those types of things can be really, really important. Because again, it's not about accusing them. It's just about gathering information and and sort Mm -hmm. of data. And then with that data, you can make decisions about what to do next. I mean, we certainly know if we start to rush in and put restrictions around something, we'll only drive the behavior underground. So creating space for conversations. I get the concept of joining them. On the other hand, some of these kids are going to be engaging with this stuff in dangerous ways. Sure, yeah. And a common story that comes out in my reporting is the kid who says, I wanted to lose weight and my mother gave me Mm. a diet and we went on the diet together. How are we joining them without reinforcing what's dangerous about it? And how do we join them and then recognize when it's something else? Yeah, that's a great point. I think when I'm saying join them, I'm sort of coming from the stance of a parent who may not have any real insight or knowledge of like their engagement in some of these behaviors. Like they may just not really know. And so I think that's sort of where I'm talking about join them. When we start to talk about families or parents who, and you can imagine like a lot of parents, like fathers, for example, are coaches of sports teams or are helping the kid train because they see that their kid is really good athlete and might be able to get a scholarship and that Mm -hmm. might make college a better possibility, right? And there's obviously lots of dreams about like athletic professional sports and all that stuff. So yeah, you can imagine that that would become a lot more complicated. And in that stance, I think, yeah, I don't even know what the answer <laughs> what the answer to that is. It kind of just it muddies the waters of being able to recognize what's sort of safe and not safe and what's helpful and what's not helpful, right? Yeah. And I think ultimately it is up to parents to hopefully be able to recognize some of the other symptoms that might be arising, which would be some of that like obsessiveness around one's dietary practices or exercise routine. You might notice drops in educational performance or, you know, socializing becomes a lot less important or they're not doing as much of it or they've lost some friends or maybe they're just generally seeming more depressed or low or their sleep has been kind of messed up or they are spending time on social media more or, you know, I mean, like those other sort of ancillary symptoms that might be Mm -hmm. occurring where might be raising some flags around like more serious mental health issues, which I think parents should hopefully be thinking about as they potentially are joining them in more maladaptive or promoting some of the behaviors that they might be engaging in. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think what's useful to tease out there is 
you as a parent might be aware your son seems disconnected socially and depressed Mm -hmm. and all of that. But because of our social conditioning around this, you might not connect that to he's going to the gym a lot. He started using protein powder. We're making these smoothies. And so what you're saying is like, pay attention to the whole picture and know that just because he's a boy, he's not immune to all this stuff, that this could be the underlying thing causing some of this other distress that you would need to look at. But I also think like, Going even further back and thinking for parents of younger kids, Mm -hmm. how do you start building emotional vocabulary, especially for boys, when the world is going to steer them away from that, right? And labeling them and helping them. I mean, I have young kids. (laughs) I notice when you're doing this, you look really mad, right? Like, that is very important to do. I was talking about the performance aspect before about bodies, too. Like, A lot of males, again, not all males, but a lot of males are interested in sports. And as I said, like you can't watch a sporting event without hearing about like someone's speed or someone's, you know, height and weight and all that stuff and strength. And so even just like asking like, man, I notice we're watching this football game and like they just can't keep talking about these guys' bodies. Like, what are you thinking when you hear that? You know, I I think like those types of questions or even just saying like, when I hear that, I'm like, why are they focusing so much on what this guy's body is? And, you know, can't they yes. just watch what he does on the field? And you might get a response. It's like, oh, like, what are you talking about? Like, right. who cares? Or, you know, but that also is information too, right? Or they might be like, no, that's actually really important. Like, because he's, you know, got this much speed and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, and that just kind of gives you more, again, more data, more information for you to understand. Yes, I am extremely sports illiterate, but I come from a football family. <laughs> and they do put, like, the football players' weights oh, and all that info yeah. up on the TV screen. And I just am realizing yes. that now and wondering why on earth. Yeah, okay. Just having yeah. <laughs> just putting some puzzle pieces together about my own family. Anyway, I think it's good to name that often when we present our kids with these like opening moments they don't necessarily like open right up and dive in deep with us but you're kind of just continuing to Mm -hmm. make yourself available and show that you're paying attention and for parents or male parents like recognizing again that they are susceptible to promoting these behaviors just like culture promotes them as this is what a boy should do without really second guessing, is that the right thing to be doing, right? Is that what I should be doing? Is my son okay with this behavior? Are they happy here? You know, those types of questions, I think are really important to kind of reflect on. And it seems like too, there's an opportunity to be sort of learning this alongside your kid. And Mm -hmm. maybe as you're trying to, yes, go to the gym with them, understand that world, understand who they're following on TikTok, You can also be sharing what you're learning about diet culture Mm -hmm. and anti-fat bias so that it's then a more robust discussion. It's not just, oh, sure, let me like teach me your workout routine. Also, let's talk about why workout routines can be problematic. Like there can be a way of engaging on multiple levels. And it may, yeah, for a lot of parents involve saying like, I'm trying to unlearn some stuff here. And, you know, I think Mm -hmm. I've pushed you to be excellent at the sport or to fulfill my lacrosse dreams or whatever it is. (laughs) And that was not the call. So let's try it differently. That unlearning piece is, I think, really important, right? And just as much as we probably talk about that for like female caregivers or mothers as it relates to like dieting and things of that nature, I think, yeah, fathers and male caregivers need to do a very similar sort of look in the mirror and reflecting on what are the behaviors that I'm engaging in How do I engage in exercise or eating that aligns with like the sociocultural norms around, you know, muscularity and body ideals around men? And how does that infiltrate and influence my young male, my son or whoever it might be? 
Yes, we are waiting for many dads to do this work, Kyle. We are waiting for this. (laughs) I can tell you about 90% of the listening audience here is not a dad. (laughs) (laughs) And we are welcoming them with open arms and we're hoping that there is more more dads doing this work. I think that's a really important point. I don't know, I have to reflect on that. But yeah, I think the dads, the father, the male caregivers, like they definitely need to do the work to be reflective on how they perpetuate these norms Mm -hmm. and how it ultimately hurts likely their sons and daughters too it is harder because as you and i've talked about so much like they don't have scripts they don't have Mm -hmm. this isn't normative um but hopefully we are starting to shift in that direction and your research is a huge piece of that so thank you so much this is so helpful yeah of course so kyle what is your butter for us today so I'm actually, I have a few things. Can I share a few things? Yeah, I love when people <laughs> okay. have a few things. <laughs> okay, good. So a couple books that I read recently that have been so good that it's been hard to read new books are Cloud Cuckoo Land, which is just oh, like a phenomenal book. Yes. Yeah, I would highly I am- recommend it to any and all people. <laughs> and then Gabrielle Zevins, I think that's how you say her name, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, oh. which also was just phenomenal. And yeah, I'm not even a video game person, but like same, I same. love video games now. <laughs> I know. I have a lot of video game people in my life, and I've always been yeah. mystified. And now I'm like, yes. okay, I, I kind of get it. I get it. Like the yeah. section at the yeah. end that's like a chapter told in the form of a video game. Mind-blowing. Mind so blowing. Yeah, that book is just great. And then I can't help, I am a sports person, I'll admit that, but I can't help but love the entertainment of, I'm a big hockey fan, so the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs has definitely brought me a lot of butter these days. Nice. <laughs> um, right. And then lastly, yeah, just hiking with my kids. I have a three and a half year old, so he thrives in being on the trails and I have a 15 month old who likes to be on the backpack. And let me tell you, hike with the backpack, like enjoy the backpack hiking sweet spot. Because it gets yes. really hard once yes. they're both it's out of true. the backpack stage and you're like, yes. now I have to persuade you both to walk. Yeah, walk yeah. in the same direction. Oh, my Lord. And not need yes. 50 million breaks and like we'll never get anywhere. <laughs> There's a dark period of hiking with kids is sort of when they're both between the ages of like three and seven. And then it starts to get much better. That's and good. Okay. Your mileage may vary, right. of course. If your three-year-old yes. already loves it, you're doing things more right than me. Yeah, yeah. he loves it. So that's good. But that's I imagine awesome. that, yeah, when the other one is out of the backpack and she has an opinion about which direction we go. It's just someone some always wants to sit down. <laughs> Someone's legs yeah. are always tired. I'm always being yes. informed about very tired legs. And I'm like, yeah. we've walked 10 feet. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We just started. <laughs> We're in the yes. parking lot still. <laughs> Well, my better is kind of on theme with what we were talking about in terms of like joining your kids where they are and making space Mm -hmm. for conversations. You know, I have two girls and so much Mm -hmm. of our time is like us together. And I've suddenly become Mm -hmm. aware of like needing more one-on-one time with each of them. Mm -hmm. And particularly with my younger one, because she goes to bed earlier. So my older daughter and I tend to get a chunk of time together in the evenings. We were watching Gilmore Girls together right now. But (laughs) my younger one, I realized wasn't getting one-on-one time. And so last weekend I took her out and I asked her what she wanted to do and she wanted to get cookies. So we went to our local coffee shop and got big chocolate chip cookies and just like sat and chatted. And it was great. And she told me all sorts of random facts about, oh, friends at school drama, Mm. just like little things about her day that hadn't come out and that she needed to let out. And then we went to the bookstore and got books. So we're calling it our cookie and book date. And I recommend a cookie and book date or whatever, insert your child's favorite things there, you know, to kind of give that connection opportunity, especially if you have multiple kids and you feel like 
have I actually looked directly at you in a while? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's can very happen true. sometimes. Can to that. Yeah. Yes, no, yeah. definitely, it's true. Yeah. And they go in like cycles of who needs more attention than the totally. other. Totally. Yeah. yeah, and you just suddenly realize like, oh, like one child yeah. has needed a lot, and the other child also needs. Yeah, that's great. I like yeah. that a lot. And it was fun because I also love cookies and books. To be clear, so like <laughs> it was great for me too. Yeah. It wasn't just like a kid thing that I would be pretending to enjoy, and that's. I feel like a parenting achievement unlocked when you yeah. like to do the same thing. Your next book is called Cookie and Book Date. The children's book that my kids are so disappointed I don't write. There you go. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Kyle, thank you so much for being here. This was fantastic. Tell us where we can follow you, how we can support your work. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter and Instagram, so you certainly can follow me along there. I try to put easy ways to sort of understand some of the research that I've been doing as infographics and visuals on those spaces. And yeah, just moving forward, like I'm really excited to continue to work on some of this data that I've collected over the last few years. We have all these new data about how they engage in like the healthcare system. So we're really going to look at sort of teasing out a bit about how we can understand how the behaviors are related to health and healthcare utilization. I often tell people like, oh, if you're concerned about your son or something like, oh, go to your healthcare provider and talk to them. But I often sort of say that and then also remember like, oh, their healthcare provider might not have ever heard of a cheat meal before. And so I'm really dedicated to like translating some of this stuff to like the healthcare space so that people can actually go to their healthcare provider and be like, oh yeah, my son's engaging in cheat meals and the healthcare provider can be like, oh yeah, okay, I know what that is. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player. And tell a friend about this episode or leave us a rating and review. All of that really helps more folks find the podcast. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.subject.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Diana Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting anti-diet body liberation journalism. <laughs>